Hey, my name is Ryan Smith. I'm the associate pastor here at Crosspoint. And on behalf of our church, I want you to know how excited we are that you are here with us. We are praying that the Lord will draw you to himself and that the spirit would move in you and through you uh, from the message that you are about to hear. While we believe that God can and will speak to you through this teaching, make no mistake about it. Uh, this is not a replacement for having a fellowship with the church, which is the bride of Christ. Hebrews speaks specifically uh, to the importance of not forsaking the gathering. This is very, very crucial in the life and journey of the believer. And so we hope to see you very soon at those gatherings. So we want to together as a church body lift high the name of Jesus. And may the Lord bless the reading and teaching of his word. Well, it's good to be with you, and I, I'm, I'm thankful to Justin for letting me have uh, a few minutes to share with you this morning, uh, launching a new series. And um, so we're going we're gonna to take a shift as a church, and uh, it, it's a little bit, gosh, I, I, I told Justin this morning, I, I, the people I've talked to, it's been a... It's a little bit of a difficult, challenging message this morning. And so I'm going to ask you to hang on because we're going to be shifting gears as a church a little bit. So 2020 has been rough. Can I get an amen? Hallelujah. Amen. Trying to navigate through the emotional response, the depression, the depravity, the anxiety, the pandemics, the politics. You remember that song, Billy Joel, We Didn't Start the Fire? Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Red. And it goes through like, this whole list of things that took place over the last half of the 20th century. And I'm like, 2020 could have its own, we didn't start the fire. Like a whole song of things that have gone on, things that, that, that were weird. I was thinking January of 2020, we thought that we were going to war with Iran, if you remember. We had just launched this, uh, they had just launched an attack uh, on us. We had killed one of their top generals. And uh, after that, Kobe Bryant was killed in that awful helicopter crash, and then COVID, and then the race riots, and now the politics, and it's just been a little bit distressing. And so it is appropriate as the church and as people of God to pause and to say, life is kind of rotten right now, where do we go? And a lot of the Psalms take that approach. It begins with the human dilemma of pain, of suffering, of injustice, of life just simply being unfair? Why do the good suffer and evil prosper? And it, so many of the Psalms begin in that realm and then it tracks its way towards, like we've done the past 
couple of months towards God being the refuge or God being salvation or God being the anchor or God being the truth. Well, I believe the heart of Justin talking to him, we've spent some time the last couple of weeks, is to take a shift and rather than beginning with the human dilemma, something that is fairly, well, it's, it's extremely subjective. It's, it's kind of all over the place, our emotions and our own problems. And to make that shift, rather than starting with the subjective and to actually start with the objective, the rock, if you will, the, the anchor, the refuge, and to begin with the solid truth the concrete reality of God's character that informs, watch this, everything that we know of in life. So rather than beginning with the human dilemma and tracing to God's character, we begin with God's character and we trace it into the human dilemma. And we're going through what he introduced last week and maybe the last couple of weeks as something that was birthed through the Reformation known as the five solas. Sola fide, it is only by faith. Sola gratia, that it is only by grace. Sola Christus, our salvation is only uh, by Christ. Sola scriptura, it is only through scripture. And sola deo gloria, it is only for the glory of God. Our salvation is understood and it is revealed and is wrapped up in these, these concepts that he's calling, that we're calling in this series, the prepositions of our salvation how salvation unfolds and we understand and we live in it. And so I'm beginning with what I think is the anchor for the rest of the messages, and that is the foundational work of Scripture, that our salvation can be understood only through Scripture. And so we do a little work. We do a little backtracking through the Reformation and through how this even came about. So since the fourth century, after Christ had come and uh, Christianity began to literally explode through the Roman Empire and making its way for the next couple of hundred centuries into Constantine, who wound up as the emperor of the Roman Empire as it had expanded across most of Western, what we know of as the Western world, um, Constantine had become Christian and had Christianized the entire nation. And shortly after that, we see pockets in Africa, we see pockets in, uh, in, uh, in Eastern Orthodoxy, but for the most part, there was one universal church. And the word Catholic means universal. It was, it was one church. And for the next thousand years, the church was fairly unified. It, it was... Um, it had its problems and it had its issues. As we're walking through this, I wanna make a disclaimer up front. This is, not, this is not a Catholic bashing message. This is a historical look through the lens and why we are where we are and how things came about. But the Catholic church at that point was the caretaker of the soul. It was, it was all consolidated there in Rome and, and it had its fingers in every every aspect of life, and the parish priests were involved in the major events, the baptisms, the marriages, the last rites, education, social events. The Catholic Church owned up to one-third of all of the land across Europe, and the Pope claimed authority over all kinds of Europe. It, it, the, the Pope was here, the magisterium, 
kind of was the authority over the kings and the kingdoms and the principalities over all of Europe and everything funneled back to the hierarchy and to the power of the papal magisterium up here, all right? That's just the way that life was. And it had moved away from the central message, I I believe this wholeheartedly, that it moved away from the message that we find in Acts of a selfless giving, when you read about Acts, it says that, that, that the people came together and they studied the word of God and they gave everything that they had so that people could have. It was a giving, it was a sacrificial. It was tied to this understanding that my, my home is not the kingdom of this world. My citizenship does not, it's not in Rome, it's not in the United States, it's not in, in Germany. My home is in heaven and there was a clear understanding that I am an alien and a sojourner I am an ambassador of Christ from heaven to this world. This world is not my home. And so I am, there's nothing that I need from this world. I am free, I'm, I'm sufficient in Christ and therefore I can love, I can give, I don't, I don't need the stuff. And it was a radical transformation. People often look, historians will look and say when, when Constantine made the Catholic church or the church at the time, when he made it the official religion of Rome, it became the, it became the downfall. It became the, 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 the igniting pen. We use the word the catalyst. It became the catalyst for the corruption of the church because watch what happened. Now the church was in power and it was never a place that the church was supposed to be. Even whenever you trace back through, um, through the Old Testament, you'll remember the Old Testament uh, God looked when he was leading Abraham out into, in, into, and to follow him in, 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 in Genesis chapter 12 and 15. He's like, follow me and, and I will make you a blessing to this world. And, and those that bless you, I'll bless. And those that curse you, I'll curse. And you'll be the father of, of, of generations. Redemption will come through you. And, and then Moses, we follow Moses as those people began to kind of consolidate and they're led out. And then Joshua into the promised land. And then the people, they find themselves unsatisfied with God, the theocracy of God as their leader and God as their king. And they begin to say, we want a king. We want someone like everyone else. And, and the world and the nation of Israel, who was supposed to be the redemptive tool, the redemptive people through which Christ and the message of hope and salvation would come. They're like, we want to be like the world. And, and they, they begin to sway more and more like this. And the same thing happened in, in Rome, some 17 1,800 years ago. We want to be like the world. We want the power. And, and everything began to focus then, and the power and the authority rested in Rome. And it had moved from Jerusalem and the cross and the living word inside of the heart of people. And they got mixed up in power and politics. We shoot a warning across the bow right now. We're actually going to hit on this in just a minute. But don't let your Christianity get so tied up in politics that it defines who you are. We'll come back to that in just a second, I promise. So 1,500 rolls around, and it's kind of a mess. It's, it's, it's a real mess. And there's, there's a little law student by the name of Martin Luther. And he's studying law, and he really doesn't like it, but he's doing it. He's a smart guy. He's well-studied, and... And the story is that he walks out and he's struck by lightning and he calls out, St. Anne, help me, St. Anne, help me. And 
And it's, it's one of these, I found God in the foxhole of war. And so he's like, if you'll just save me, then I'll give you whatever. And so sure enough, he does. He drops out of law school and he goes and he becomes a monk. And the Catholic church, he's like, I'm gonna give my life to the service of God. And there he is and he begins to study, he begins to read, but he was a troubled soul. He was a troubled man. Internally, there was all of this dialogue that was constantly going on with him that he never felt right. He never felt like things were right. And he was sent to Rome. And when he got to Rome, he was so consumed with the, with the, um, with the immorality that he saw with prostitutions and, 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 and the abuse of power and just all of the immorality that had just saturated Rome. And he just begins to like have this unquenchable desire to confess. He wanted to confess the sins of Rome and more importantly, he just wants to, con- he wants to confess his own sins. And so he goes and finds a priest and he begins confessing. And he's one of these that's just like, I'm gonna confess of everything that I've ever done. And by the time he got to the bottom, it's like, and this, and this, and this. And then he comes back the next day and he just goes through the same cycle of confession. And he comes back the next day and he goes through the same cycle of confession. And finally, the priest has had enough. He's like, dude, you gotta get a life. So he sends him to a little town in Germany called Wittenberg. And he says, just go to the university there, study, just get out of my hair. I'm, I'm tired of listening to these things. You need help. And so, so, so Martin Luther would, would go in and he began to study scripture. And as he's studying through the book of Romans, he comes across the verse that says, and the just shall live by faith. And you talk about a light bulb going off. He's like, the just shall live by faith. And he begins to unpack it. It's like it's our salvation Our being justified is by faith. Our being made right with God has nothing to do with prayers or fasting or or vigils or pilgrimages or relics or giving to the poor or the alms or indulgences or, or, or any of that. It's simply by faith. About that time, a little friar by the name of Tetzel comes walking through and collecting indulgences from the people. An indulgence basically says, give me some money and I'll give you one of those Monopoly cards that says, get out of hell free cards. And so they were charging an exorbitant amount of money. Roughly a half of people's wages would go to these indulgences to the Catholic church so that the church could buy more property, more land, become more and more, more powerful. Well, Martin Luther's like, I ain't giving you no money. As a matter of fact, you're absolutely wrong. You're wrong in 95 different ways. And so he writes out what are known as the 95 Theses. And he goes up to the doors of Wittenberg Castle and he nails them to them. And World War II, or World War Pre-1, it just gets messy really, really fast. And so he, he's, he's written it and he's publicized it. And now all of a sudden it, it, would, it is a declaration of war. It's not just a theological disagreement or a doctrinal dispute. This is, a, this is seen almost as an act of war because of the power of Rome. And so he's like, you know, we're justified by faith. This is where the church is wrong. These are things that are, that are awful. Well, fast forward a little bit 
just down the road from Wittenberg in a place called Mainz, Germany, the Gutenberg, Johann Gutenberg had developed the printing press and as, as Martin Luther is beginning to say, I'm reading scripture and scripture is coming alive and what I see in life and what I see proclaimed in scripture, the church and scripture, we have parted ways. It was never Luther's intent to go and start a new movement. It was to reform what was broken. That's why it's called the, the Reformation. And so he's like, we've, we've got to reform this thing. And so he's working diligently, but he sees this deep discrepancy. And one of the things that he does is he translates scripture from Latin, all those solo things that we talk about, he puts those into the German language, the everyday language for the people to have the scripture at their, at their disposal, to read it and to be enlightened and to let the spirit teach and to train and to transform and now all of a sudden the scripture begins to just flow out because there had, been, there had been plenty of friars and monks and priests that had called out against Rome, but now all of a sudden word with the printing press, it was, it was kind of a divine providential moment in history where the reformation, the, the protests, and the ability to get that word out just began to, just began to, uh, just absolutely saturated the, the countryside. And so as this is going on, you begin to see these people, Zwingli and the Calvinists and the Anabaptists, and the Anglicans and the Puritans and the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Quakers and, and these, all of these splinters, they begin to read it for themselves and they're like, well, this is what scripture is saying. And this Protestant Reformation, this movement begins to take place. And the question becomes central. If the authority of the church doesn't rest in the Pope or the parish or the priests, or the magisterium of the church, then where does the authority of one's salvation rest? Well, 1521, we fast forward about four years. April 1521, Luther had written a lot by this time, 25 works. And he is sent before the council at a place called, we call it Worms in Germany. They might, they're gonna pronounce it like Worms, just down the road from Mainz. It's, it's right there. And the council calls Luther up at the Diet of Worms to repent of his writings. And I've been to this place and there's, a, there's this plaque and it's written in German, but it basically says, quoting Luther, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. That's not actually what he said. Luther had written these great volumes of works and they were separated into two thirds or three thirds. The first third was something that everybody would agree with. It's the truth, it's what scripture says. The next third were marked, the marked errors of the Catholic church. This is what's wrong with the church. And then the other third were things where he just goes off. And if you thought the presidential debate the other night was a slugfest, Luther's writings at this point were just vulgar about how much he detested what had gone on in the church. And this is what he said. Unless they're calling him to recant of his, of, of, of his view and understanding and proclamation of scripture. And he, he says this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Let me read that sentence again. 
I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is not safe nor right to go against my conscience. May God help me. And in that moment, in that season, the central authority specifically on salvation was moved from the magisterium of Rome into back to the scripture. I would give, when I was in Germany, I would give tours of the churches. I was, part of my job as what was called the care team, as, as Navy personnel were coming out of theater, they would come to Germany, they'd spend a week, um, about a week in Germany, and we'd take to different places, and we'd go see different things, and and in every town, there's, there's a church that we would go to, and beautiful, majestic Catholic churches. But one of the things that happened during this transformation was the architecture of the church changed. From a bird's eye view, if you looked at a church, the Catholic church, it was in the shape of a cross. And, and right up here would be the central part of the mass then you'd have two places, if you've been in one, that often have little uh, places of prayer, vigils, uh, lighting of the candles usually takes place in the two arms of the cross, and then the people would sit over here. Well, I've, I've got it kind of upside down. So imagine a cross right here. I know I use my hands a lot when I teach. But right over here is where the priest would stand, and he would give, he would, he would give his homily from the side, the central part of the church, it's very different than the Protestants, was the mass. It was, it was the Eucharist. It was what we call the Lord's Supper. And that, that's, the centra, that's the centralness of it. It's, it's the authority of the church in the mass to execute and provide salvation. What you saw then in the architecture changing of the church is the word moved from the side to the very center. So even what we do here today is a direct response from the Protestant Reformation to put the scripture as the central authority in the church as we understand salvation. So it, it, one of the reasons this is a different message is because all of that, and we haven't even really looked at scripture there. So I'm gonna ask you to turn to Psalm 119. I'm gonna do a... a quick survey, and we're going to look at a number of different verses. I'm going to read them because I think it is so important today. Oh my gosh, it's so important today that we understand and we align ourselves, we root ourselves in the truth of Scripture. There is a fascinating documentary that's come out on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And if you haven't watched it, and you do social media, I would highly recommend that you watch it. It talks about how people have become the commodity of, of social media and these giants of whatever, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything like that, but it's, but it's true that, that, that our social media creates these echo chambers for how we experience truth. And if I, if I like Trump and, and I follow these things and I'm a Second Amendment guy, then they control some of the things that I see. And if I'm, you know, pro-Biden and I'm, you know, 
these different issues, then they're gonna control what I see, and it's pitted against each other. Well, what's interesting is the end of the documentary, you find the guy that's produced it, and by no means is he, is he Christian. We don't know one way or the other. I assume that he's, it's, it's indifferent, but what he says is this, if we can't make our way back to truth, then there is no hope. There is no hope. That's the message today. That was the message that Luther was crawling out 500 years ago is we've got to make our way back to truth. Psalm 119, beginning in verse seven, talks about the righteousness of scripture. He says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Verse 62, at midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Verse 106, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous statutes, your righteous rules. He's talking about the law, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. 123, my eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. You have appointed your testimonies in verse 138. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Verse 144, Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules, your statutes, your precepts, they endure forever. Verse 164, seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. Verse 172, my tongue will sing of your word for all of your commandments are right. So what the psalmist is saying is this, is that our understanding, our experience of right, of truth, of righteousness is rooted in this. Verse 42, then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me for I trust in your word. Not only is it righteous, but it is also trustworthy. Verse 43, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth for my hope is in your rules. It's trustworthy, it's truthful. Verse 142, your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Verse 151, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Verse 86, all of your commandments are sure. They're faithful. They persecute me with falsehood, so help me. They're unchanged, they're unchangeable. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in heaven. Verse 152, long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever, they're eternal. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. And what's established is that God's word is light, that scripture is eternal, that scripture is unchangeable, that scripture is faithful, that it's truthful, that it's trustworthy, that it is righteous. When we think of the Reformation, the reforming of the church, not the intent to start a new one or anything like that, but to bring it back to the scripture. Yes, there is tradition. Yes, there was the magisterium. Yes, there was papal authority. But we gotta bring all of that back. And it says that everything falls underneath the authority. The, The authority of scripture is the ultimate in our understanding, our light into what is right, what is faithful, what is true. I've noticed so many people spend their life looking for some grand extra. 
They're looking for something outside of Scripture as, as this enlightenment. It's like, yeah, it's Scripture, but, but what else? I, I need something else. And the truth is that everything that we need to know, everything that we need to know about God and about life has been given to us in this work. I remember even back in 1999, I was praying through, um, I, I guess it was 2000, that, that Shauna and I were praying through whether we were supposed to come to Mississippi or not, right? So you're praying that. We were in South Carolina at a church that was growing, it was thriving, it was big, it was moving. We were doing student ministry and had multiple hundreds of kids coming at different campuses. And, and though it was challenging, it was, it, was a, it was a lot going on. So we began to pray, God, is this, is this what we're supposed to be doing? How do you get that answer? Well, through circumstances, through people talking to us. Was the money going to be good enough? Well, we, went, we went to Scripture. And at that time, I was reading through First uh, and Second Samuel, through the life of David. And I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit took those Scriptures that were true, that were faithful, that were unchangeable, that were eternal, and they were a light unto my path. And he graciously and faithfully led us along the way. It's easy to look and to be critical and to say, well, it was scripture. It was never supposed to be, you know, this or it was supposed to be that. But the truth is that we today even have our own, what I would call our modern magisterium. That we're a people of the book, right? We're, it's scripture first, it's the autonomy of the local church, it's, it's sola scriptura, it is, it is the word of God alone. But the truth is that we have punted, we have punted on the authority of scripture and we have bowed down to what, what, what I'm calling pastoral bias. Whatever you grew up with and whatever church and whatever your pastor was passionate about, the only scripture that you know and the only scripture that that we're even in tune to is whatever our pastors were passionate about. I mean, I look back at my own 15 years as a, as a senior pastor of a church, and there were things that I'd be reading and I'd be like, oh yeah, that's awesome. I don't really understand that. That's good, I'm gonna teach on this. What, money the church is supposed to give and tithe, and that's an actual commandment from God that we're supposed to do that? He. What about like, I don't know, do we offend, do we not offend? Well, we can't even pay our power, but I don't know. Let's preach on, let's, I don't know, let's do something. And it's in my own humanity, in my own sinfulness, in my own arrogance, in my own pride, un, I never intentionally did those things. But subconsciously, there were things that I was passionate about and there were things that I was unsure about and there were, my own journey was woven into scripture. And if your only interaction was whatever me or Justin or whoever stood behind this pulpit or the fancy pulpits that had like lots of dental molding and, and remembrance of me like tattooed across there, if that's your only interaction with scripture, then we're no different than the, we're no different than the people in the middle ages that just looked to Rome. It's like, what you got for me? 
It's not only pastoral bias, but it's also politics. Our passions or our politics become the starting point by which scripture is held hostage to blue or red inclinations. I'm afraid that the American church identifies more with the political party than what scripture says about them. Third thing is cultural context, is cultural issues ebb and flow and the desires to be more relevant and liked by the world. We hail certain passages and disdain others. And this is a matter of authority in our lives. This is God's, this is God's authority in our lives. It is, it is the playbook for life. It is, it is the doctrine. It is the theology. It is the knowledge of God. It is the light of our lives of how we're to live, how, how we're to interact. The Westminster Confession says it like this, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, for man's salvation, for faith, and for life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture unto which nothing at any times is to be added whether by new revelations of the spirit or traditions of man. When we talk about scripture alone as the authority of our salvation, we're just talking about, and I, <laughs> I was talking to Bo, I was like, I'm gonna be talking a lot and I'm not gonna have very many points that we can kind of come down to, but here's a couple of points if, you're, if you like writing down things, this is for you. This is for you writer downer people. When we talk about the authority of salvation, the authority of scripture and salvation, we're talking about three things. Number one is we're talking about, we're talking about authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five through seven, where Jesus is speaking to the crowds, at the end of it, it says this, this one phrase, and the crowds were amazed because he spoke as one who had authority, all right? So when we think about authority, it's tied to that word author. The reason that I have authority is because I have penned it. The reason that Jesus spoke with authority on Matthew five through seven about how we're to live is because he's the author of life and it makes sense that as the author speaks, there is authority. When I was in seminary, I took a class called the Philosophical Thought on the Modern Approach to God. I thought it was gonna be what Oprah Winfrey at the time thought about God, but it was this deep philosophical dig. And I remember walking by uh, the registrar's office every Monday before class thinking, I just need to withdraw. I just need to withdraw. I, I can't do this. I don't understand it. I was writing a paper on neo-Thomism, this little monk's the neo-Thomistic approach to God. And I remember thinking, I am so lost. And I had to give up, get up and give a speech. And I was tied to my notes. And I was like, here, here. I spoke with zero authority because I didn't understand the topic. The scripture is God's breathed, inspired word to humanity as the author of life, the authority of scripture, specifically on salvation, but into the all of the tenets of life. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse 13, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. But not only are we talking about the authority of scripture, we're talking about the sufficiency of scripture. 
The Diet of Worms, John Eck, who's a presiding council person, said this. He said, listen, not, he's talking to Martin Luther, not everything has been clearly handed down in the sacred scriptures. He's right. There are things that are gray areas. It's, there are things that are, um, I wrote this down, that we are to have grace where the word is silent. We are to have boldness where the word has spoken. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, the ones that are recorded, have been written so that you, uh, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Grace where the word is silent, boldness where the word has spoken. Tim Keller, guy that pastor, he was pastor in New York for a long time, Presbyterian type guy. But he said this recently about the political landscape. And I wanna, I wanna float this out there and I don't want you to miss the point. He said this, the Bible binds my conscience to care for the poor, but it does not tell me the best practical way to do it. Any particular strategy, whether it's high taxes and government services or it's low taxes and private charity. It may be good and wise and may even be somewhat inferred from other things the Bible teaches, but they are not directly commanded and therefore we cannot insist that all Christians as a matter of conscience follow one or the other. The Bible binds my conscience to love the immigrant, but it doesn't tell me how many legal immigrants to admit to the U.S. every year. It does not exactly prescribe immigration policy. The current political parties offer a potpourri of different positions on these and many other topics, most of which, as just noted, the Bible does not speak to directly. This means when it comes to taking political positions, voting, determining alliances, political involvement, the Christian has liberty of conscience. Christians cannot say to one another that no Christian can ever vote for this person or for that person, unless you can find a biblical command to that effect. Now, some of you right now, you're riled up. You're like, but what about this? What about this? That's not the point. The point is that the Bible has spoken clearly on a lot of things. And in those things where there is absolute, that we stand in confidence and in boldness and we bow our knee to the authority of scripture on those things. There are gray areas in scripture. And if you don't believe me, then just take a scan and notice Life Church across that has Pentecostal roots, uh, the Wesleyan church, the Methodist that has Wesleyan roots, the Presbyterian church down the road, Audubon Bible church down the road, the, the smorgasbord of Baptist churches around, the, 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 the missionary Baptists, the Southern Baptists, the Northern Baptists, the whatever they're calling themselves now, the Great Commission Baptist, whatever it is, it's because as we go to this, there are certain things that there are authority. As Christians, though, we go, to, we go to these issues where the Bible is not clear on, and we humbly seek the Lord as he presses into our conscience what is right and what is wrong in areas that are difficult to discern. But we show charity, we show love to each other. I am so sick and tired of the garbage that is spewed from people who claim to follow Christ, who get on social media and make an absolute mess of everything. 
Uh, that's it. You don't have to pay for that one. I know, right? I used to not, I used to like not, I don't know, whatever. Just remember that our citizenship is in heaven, that we are citizens of Christ, that we are ambassadors of God, not to get in a political agenda across, but to get the gospel across to the ends of the earth. That's it. That's, that's, that's why we're here. Otherwise, we would have been like on Star Trek, beam me up, Scotty, and he just like, oh, you're a Christian, you're saved, you did the thing, boop, I rescued you, boop, and we're just stuck out. Nope, we've got a mission, and that is to, for, oh, this is what the next four weeks are gonna be about. Why are we here? What is our salvation? It's for the glory. It is for the glory of God for all of eternity. The last thing is not only the sufficiency of Scripture, that it has spoken or it can be deduced, but, but it's also the clarity of Scripture. It doesn't mean that all Scripture is crystal clear. I mean, nor that there was no need for pastors to teach and to, to help us to understand Scripture. But Scripture... The, but it's the idea that scripture could be read by anyone and it could be understood by anyone. Um, Wycliffe said that scripture was for the plowboy. That's who it was, intended, it was intended for. So it's the authority of scripture, it's the sufficiency of scripture, and it is the clarity of scripture. So I'm gonna take you to a couple of verses in closing. The authority of scripture meaning that what God has said about this is his word on the matter. The sufficiency of scripture is that it is enough to know. And the clarity is that it, that it in Timothy, that it is, it is like a two-edged sword that goes and divides the bone from the marrow. It is, it is clear. So when we read in Romans chapter one, verse 20, that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and his Godhead can be seen in creation so, so that man is without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. But they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. That is the authority of God with the sufficiency and the clarity of God's take on humanity. Then we read in Romans chapter three that all of us have sinned, every, every single one of us. And we have fallen short of the glory of God. That is his authority, authoritative stance. The humanity's hearts have been darkened and they were futile in their thoughts. They've rejected God. And they have, all of us have sinned and all of us fall short of the glory of God. That is clear. That is sufficient for our understanding. In Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God but God demonstrates his love towards us. Who is the us? Well, the sufficiency and the clarity of the authority of scripture says, the us are sinners who have fallen short of God's glory, whose hearts are darkened, whose minds are futile in our thoughts. But God demonstrates his unbelievable, radical love towards us in that while we were still that sinners, Christ died for us. 
Then in Romans 6, 23, and the wages, the penalty for those sins, the debt owed of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's authoritative. That is sufficient. That is clear. In Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is authoritative. That is sufficient. That is clear. For with the heart one believes into righteousness and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. That is authoritative. That is sufficient. And that is clear. In Romans 10, 13, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That is authoritative. That is sufficient. And that is clear from the plowboy to the king. Romans eleven thirty six for of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever and forever and forever. Amen. Saints of old have lived their lives They've lived their lives in such a way it's, I mean, such heroes of the faith, men and women, rich and poor, young and old, Republicans and Democrats. They've lived their lives for that glory of God. And you know what the hearkening words that we've longed to hear? Well done, my good my faithful servant. Good. By the righteousness of Christ, it's been imputed to me on the cross. My faithful, that I've taken what is sufficient and clear and I've bowed my knee to that. Servant, that I've worshiped the Almighty as the authority and his word in my life. And out of this, over the next few weeks, we are going to take and we are going to expound and to explore and to dive into the riches and the depths of what God has has told us about salvation, the prepositions, our interaction and our relationship with God's salvation through these beautiful, beautiful truths that are not only life-changing in the big scope of eternity, but they are life changing for us today. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in with us today. Uh, We hope that you enjoyed the message. We hope that the Lord uh, spoke to you um, and we are grateful for you. Uh, Like I said earlier, uh, we hope to see you very, very soon in our church uh, gatherings. Hey, if God spoke to you today and you need to speak to one of our pastors, we would love uh, to have a chance just to meet you and to speak with you. Uh, You can uh, fill out a form. It's actually on our website. You can go to crosspointchurch.org forward slash respond. Fill that out and submit it. It will be uh, sent to us and we'll be in contact with you very soon. And we would love to set up a time to meet with you just about things that might be going on in your life, what the Lord is doing uh, in your life and different things like that. Remember to check out our website. It's got all of the information that you need, our staff information, ways that you can connect, and obviously sermons that you can watch. So thanks again, and we hope you have a blessed day.